Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisan. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisan. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the February 2022 edition of the Third Fridays podcast. You know, um, we had last month's edition, and one of my good friends uh, who uh, isn't really in the industry, but uh, I guess likes me a lot, uh, follows the podcast and listened to the episode and said that it had too much of an NPR feel. And I think that maybe it was because I was doing it by myself. So we're back to the guest format. I have one of my favorite guys in the office. Um, Ian Haberstrow is here uh, as a guest uh, the second time, right? You, Ian, did you guest once last year? I think you did. Yes, I did. Actually, we discussed IMEs uh, as well in that podcast, I believe, too. All right. Okay, great. So uh, Ian is here today to talk about IMEs again. Uh, but more specifically, when we think that an IME should not be obtained by an employer or carrier in a New York workers' compensation claim. Now, uh, Ian and I have talked for months and months over these types of opportunities because we've gone back and forth over the uh, strengths and weaknesses of each position. Uh, but the, it, it, essentially, that's what this podcast is, right? Uh, all the, t- the shop talk that we do in the office, uh, giving uh, all of you an inside track and, and a fly-on-the-wall approach to how we do things here. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, I guess before that, though, IME stands for Independent Medical Examination. I just have this weird bugaboo, this like pet peeve when people say IME exam. Right? Because it's because it, it's repetitive. It's it's in there. It's almost like when people say like uh, ATM machine, right? It's just I don't know. It's 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 weird. But whatever. Uh, we broke it down into different scenarios where you think that uh, clients should not be getting IMEs. Correct. Is there any? I guess it's may seem obvious, but in all of these categories. What does the client really face when they do get an IME? So you and I, as we've discussed, there, there is a, a general trend, uh, especially with the law judges, and I think it is also um, almost encouraged by some claimants' attorneys uh, to get an IME when there is somewhat of a uh, suspect um, idea as to whether or not a claimant has actually suffered an injury as a result of the work accident, right? And the trend is, is that basically the law judge wants the carrier to go out and get an IME, as does the claimant's attorney, in the hopes that the IME will concede causal relationship. And then what does a law judge do? Basically, you go back to the hearing, and all of a sudden, they'll say, because your IME conceded, I'm going to establish it. And we say, no, no, hold on, judge. Uh, there's some, you know, uh, some questions regarding the actual accident history given to our IME, or there may be some issues that need to be developed. A law judge will pretty much almost always overlook that and say, you can note your objection, but I'm going to establish the claim, right? So essentially, like, using the report against us. Exactly, right? yes. Even though it's not 
the only tenet to compensability, right? We may have other defenses involved. Yes. It's this, uh, you know, I, I was about to say time-honored, but uh, I don't think it's honorable at all when law judges do this, that, uh, you know, a doctor that's designed to rebut the uh, findings of a treating physician concedes something and we're hit with it, right? Um, you know, looking at an IME as an independent physician and using that to add exposure to a claim has been uh, the real issue. And, you know, sometimes without the proper advice, clients will look at a notice of decision, they'll see that an IME is directed, and they'll just get the IME. So we've looked at a couple of uh, instances where it may not be the, the best thing to do. Now, we have eliminated uh, some of the more obvious ones. You know, for example, let's say you're getting an IME for schedule loss of use, but a treating doctor finds uh, an opinion that doesn't move any net award to the claimant. We're not going to go into that. Um, we're not going to go into claims where maybe you're just making a coverage defense or an employer-employee relationship defense. If you're saying that those uh, defenses are your main defenses, defenses and they're pretty strong, why spend the money on an independent medical examination? Uh, so we won't go over those ones. Those are a little bit more obvious, and I think they uh, that clients really are aware of those types of scenarios. But we broke it down to three categories, and I think the first one is the one that really touched on this type of con conversation that we've been having. And it really goes to what I deem a specificity failure. So Ian, look, what does that mean? And uh, what, are, what, what's, what are some examples of when an IME should not be obtained due to a specificity failure? So there, the, the big one obviously are ODNCR claims where the treating doctor has failed to give any distinctive features of the claimant's employment uh, to explain how the claimant actually developed the alleged occupational disease. Uh, another would be uh, instances where, say, um, a claimant is alleging a consequential injury after the claim is already established, uh, but nowhere in the treating doctor's report does he establish or explain how the consequential injury developed as a result of the established injuries. Um, and then there's also the ANCA repetitive stress claims, where many times the doctor will simply say the claimant has pain as a result of their work, uh, but does not give any actual specific explanation as to how that pain or alleged injury developed related to the work activities. So uh, those are the, the three main areas where we see a treating doctor fail to give specifics in their what ultimately will be found to be the PFME report by the law judge, and in those instances when there are no specifics in the treating doctor's reports, it's my position that we should not be getting an IME because the treating doctor has already failed to meet the burden of proof, um, but this is obviously the basis of our podcast. Yeah, so let's pick one of them, right? So which which one do you want to start with where we'll rehash you know, exactly what you mean by that? Okay, so obviously controverted audience here claims are the issue that kind of uh, developed our discussion or... Uh, What's an example of a controverted ODNCR claim? So you'll have, um, let's let's pick a, uh, you know, somebody that works at a, uh, like in a warehouse, right? And 
they're basically they they have a physical job, but they're on a forklift much you know a large part of the day, and you'll get a report, and it'll simply say that. Uh, the claimant engages in a lot of bending, lifting, and walking activities, and now all of a sudden has developed bilateral knee injuries, bilateral shoulder injuries. But there's not, nothing distinctive about bending, lifting. When a doctor gives a very generalized uh, explanation for how these alleged injuries developed that is not distinct to the claimant's employment, through case law, we can have the case disallowed. But if we go and get an IME, and then that IME says, oh, and many times the IME will actually be given a much more detailed history than what the treating doctor received. So then all of a sudden, the IME gets a more detailed history, concedes causal relationship, and now we're fighting an uphill battle. Okay, so uh, this one, you know, does kind of ring true for me. I, I you know, I'm not going to disagree with you all the time. Okay. Uh, so we have, you know, your, 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 the, the bending, the walking, the lifting. And I think what goes to this is activities that can be repeated elsewhere, right? Like a person bends, lifts, walks, sits, and stands at home. Yep. So when the claimant goes into his or her own doctor and says, this is what I do, and then just says work, naturally, the PFME doctor is going to say, well, I guess if that's what you do at work, then that's what caused this. Right. But if there's nothing distinctive about the claimant's job, you know, in your case, working that forklift, for example, he's on the forklift four hours a day. And during those four hours, right, he is sitting in, t- in a, uh, you know, a position where the seat makes him arch forward or arch back. And because of that, right, like those are distinctive things about the claimant's job duties Correct. that essentially put the onus on us to refute. But what you're saying is if there's nothing about the, specif- the specificity of the job that we should not get an IME uh, to refute causal relationship. You'd rather cross-examine the doctor. Exactly, yes. Okay. Now, what's the difference between that and a traumatic repetitive stress claim? So an ANCI repetitive stress claim is is generally, so say on one day a claimant engages in some type of repetitive act- activity, um, say they were just hammering away at a wall and breaking up a wall, but their general job duties had nothing to do with that. And so on one day, they were doing a repetitive activity that they developed pain. They didn't actually have an accident, but it's given ANCR because it's an actual, it's a specific date. It's not developed over time. There's no actual accident, but the claimant did develop pain as a result of this repetitive activity on a specific date. Now, to differentiate that from an ODNCR claim, an ODNCR claim is essentially the same phrase we used before, a distinctive feature of the claimant's uh, employment that caused pain over a period of time, right? So it's not a specific day that it happened. It would be something that developed over weeks, months, a year, uh, and it's distinct to the claimant's employment, right? It would be a specific job duty, just much like you said, driving a forklift. They're sitting on the forklift. They're uh, tweaking their back as a result of you know shifting the seat, and that develops over time. That would be an occupational disease claim as opposed to uh, say, in that same exact instance, say it was a non-forklift uh, driver that got on a forklift one day, and as a result of uh, 
let's just say, you know, moving the seat or whatever they had to do on that that specific day, that would be an ANCR repetitive stress claim broadly. I mean, that would be probably not necessarily compensable, but you get the distinction, right, as opposed right. to... So you're hammering, or I mean, maybe put it in, in timeline terms, you can be hammering away on a particular day and you know that you got hurt from that day, or you could be hammering for 30 years as part of your job. Right. And you don't know which day really caused the injury. That's an occupational exposure Exactly, claim. yes. The traumatic repetitive stress is when you can really narrow it down to this particular day. Correct. So if we use that hammering concept, right, the, 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 the activity of hammering away on a particular day, what type of medical report are you looking at where you're going to think about not getting an IME? So you're saying, uh, okay, well, let's just say that we have a carpenter, right? And the carpenter fills out a C3. This is will lead into the medical report. And what does the, what does the C3 say? Uh, maybe sometimes it'll just simply say developed arm pain as a result of repetitive work activities. Won't give us any distinctive features. So that, that's so on the developed, developed arm pain because of working? As or? a result of work activities, right? Okay. A very vague C3. Okay. The claimant goes to the treating doctor. Treating doctor receives basically the same history. He knows the claimant's a carpenter, uh, but obviously he does not receive any specifics regarding the claimant's job. Now, all of a sudden, I have a report in my hands that I really like, right? I'm looking at a treating doctor's report that says the claimant was a carpenter for 25 years, developed arm pain as a result of his work activities. It says nothing in that report about what his actual work activities are. So in my mind, I'm looking at that report, and I'm gonna, on cross-examination, I'm going to be like, okay, so doctor, you said it was work-related, but you did not document any specific job features in this report that caused the actual you know, arm injuries. Did you receive an actual job description from the claimant? No, I didn't. Maybe he was a supervisor. Maybe he hasn't been doing anything for a very long period of time. And all of a sudden, I now have a, a treating doctor report that I can pick apart. So that, to me, is the type of uh, treating doctor report, PFME report, that I like to see. As soon as I see something that's very vague from a treating doctor saying the claimant developed pain as a result of his work activities over 25 years, this is the type of report that I can pick apart on cross-examination. So essentially with that one, you're, it's, it's a, the reasons are a little bit similar, right? Because, you know, in the first example we're talking about, the specificity of the duties that cause an injury over time. And in the repetitive stress traumatic claim, where you're locking it into a particular day, you're still saying the doctor didn't document something about the claimant's job duties. Like he's just a carpenter who now uh, has an injury to his arm from overuse, right? Yes. If it just says overuse, then that is, that's actually a report that I would I would be happy to see from a treating doctor because I already know he's not giving specifics. And again, to to frame it back to our clients, right? If we get the IME in that case, what you worry about is what that the claimant is going to give a more specific history to the IME. See, now why would he give a more specific history to the IME? So he's probably going to speak to his uh, attorney prior, and the attorney is going to advise him to give the, the IME specifics regarding his work activities because the claimant's attorneys also know the legal standard for... Uh, because the claimant's attorneys want the IME to concede to get an easy one. Exactly. So the attorney tells 
the claimant to be more specific, whereas you're saying maybe the claimant's attorney is not as uh, helpful <laughs> uh, with the claimant in pursuing something with a treating doctor? Well, they also know that the PFME standard for is, lower. is very low. Okay. All right. So those are two options uh, where maybe the treating doctor doesn't provide um, you know, specifics about what the claimant is doing or his job, right? Right. Now, this third option that you talked about are consequential injuries. What, like, what is an example of a consequential injury? So the biggest one we, we will almost always see uh, will be uh, a claimant suffers a left knee injury and then as a result of an altered gait, allegedly develops a right knee injury, even though when we get the MRI back, it'll say that he has degenerative changes in his knee, in his right knee, and um, that would be the most simple, straightforward way to establish a consequential injury uh, would be something like that, where the claimant says, you know, I had pain in my, my left knee, I had surgery, therefore I had an altered gait, and all of a sudden, due to my altered gait, I developed more pain or increased pain in my right knee, and then all of a sudden, the treating doctor's report comes back and says, now the claimant has developed a consequential injury in his right knee due to the altered gait. We go to the hearing, PFME is found. Um, now, in that instance, we may have to get an IME, but there are instances where that necessarily, the treating doctor doesn't give us those specifics. So let's, let's then talk about the report, because we want to educate clients on what the report's should say before they get the IME, right? So what what does a consequential report look like that causes you to think, hmm, I, I don't think I should be getting an IME? Right. So many times you will you'll be re- you'll be reviewing a treating doctor report. It'll say that the let's just go with the knee example. Claimant has knee pain now in the right knee. Uh, we're tr- and then at the very bottom on the report, it will say something to the effect that uh, we are now attempting to get the right knee included in this claim as a consequential injury, but does not give any specifics as to how that consequential injury developed. At that point, the, the lodger is going to find PFME. So may- mainly you're saying the, cla- like the report's going to say the claimant now has a consequential right knee injury without giving any specifics as to how it developed. Okay. So... Why Why would um, cross-examination, what, what are you going to use in cross-examination there without an IME? Because, you know, what clients look at is if there is an injury, then I want my doctor to look at it. But explain it a little bit more about what you're going to do in cross-examination to supplement the reason why an IME should not be procured. So sticking with the, the knee example... Uh, let's say this treating doctor has examined the claimant four or five times before he documents that the claimant has right knee pain, right? I'm going to look at those prior reports, and if they make no mention of an altered gait, then all of a sudden I have a pretty good defense that the claimant did not have an altered gait that would explain the, the consequential knee complaints, Right. So if there's no documentation in the prior exams leading up to that, and then in the PFME exam, there's no explanation as to how the consequential injury developed, then I'm going to be able to kind of pick that apart on cross-examination. Whereas, like we've said on the other examples, right, if he goes to the IME and says, all of a sudden he tells the IME, oh, as a, as a result of an altered gait, I developed knee pain. Then the IME says, well, there's nothing else to explain it. The claimant has pre-existing degenerative changes in the knee that could have been exacerbated by the altered gait. 
and I'm going to find consequential relationship. Okay, uh, so I I'm not as I'm not as with you there because I think it is very easy for a claimant's doctor, or a treating doctor, to say because this then that, right? I, you know, with a consequential injury, usually, and I'm you know, if we look at a crystal ball, how, how does how do I think? Uh, these things come uh, to fruition. I think what happens is the claimant tells his or her attorney that, you know what, my right knee's been bothering me too. So what does the claimant's attorney say to that claimant in that situation? Go tell your treating doctor and have him give you an explanation as to why you developed that pain. And then what is the workers' compensation treating doctor going to say? <laughs> He's going to say that it is related to your work-related right uh, left knee injury as a result of... And would that be enough? For PFME or for establishment? It's definitely enough for PFME. Right. And if... And that's what I want, that right there. That small pause where you're thinking about whether it's good enough for causal relationship because it can't be a situation where we look at a consequential report and we automatically think, no IME. Right, because there's no description. It's it's a very very hard undertaking to make that a bulletproof statement because as soon as you pause and think to yourself, well, is it enough for causal relationship? You might wind up needing that IME, like right, like if you're not fully sure. Like we we talked about those first two examples where there's no specificity. Now we like have a consequential injury for an already established claim. And I think once we feel like we're thinking about it, I don't want to rush to judgment and say no IME. Is that fair? True. And also, I think we have to take into consideration the MRI findings, right? If we know, say the MRI has already been performed on the uh, consequential claim site, and we already know that there are at least degenerative findings, there's evidence of arthritis, there's evidence of tears, we know that that knee has an injury and most likely pre-existing, right? Uh, depending on the age of the case. So we, we know that the IME is going to have to at least agree that there is some type of injury. Then it's just going to come down to his opinion as to whether or not it developed as a result of a consequence to the established left knee injury, right? Okay. So, and you and I have said this before, um, there typically needs to be something else to explain the claimant's complaints other than the compensatory injury, right? And if that doesn't exist, many times the IME will simply say, well, there's nothing else. These may, there may be pre-existing findings, but they could have been exacerbated. And therefore, I believe the, the new pain is a result or as a consequence of the established left knee injury. So in that case... I, I could see, right, where if there's no connection, right, it's another specificity failure, there's at least a discussion. I'm not fully on board with saying no IME for consequential injuries uh, because usually if I say right now I fell on my left knee, yep. that altered gait would have to be so bad, right? You better have a cane. You better have had maybe even surgery. You better have limped across, you know, you know, uh, to the doctor's appointment, right? You better not be able to stand, right? For that alter gate to be truly sufficient to cause a right knee injury. Usually what happens, if you're really feeling right knee pain, 
you might actually have a prior right knee injury that you're not telling everybody about. And if there's a potential other source for an injury, I still may want to get an IME because I can tell the IME doctor, look at the records from this prior right knee injury. Oh, definitely. Okay, so in, under those circumstances, if we have evidence of a pre-existing uh, right knee injury, then definitely. that That is a, a very appropriate time to get an IME to comment on that, to say, can you please give us a formal opinion as to whether or not the current right knee complaints are a result uh, of a consequential injury or are they pre-existing and are, are all the findings attributable to the pre-existing injury? That I agree with you 100% on. Okay. So let's move on from specificity failure to uh, another type of situation, right? Um, You know, you mentioned multiple accident histories. So explain why or explain a type of case where multiple accident histories would exist and uh, why you would not want to get an IME. So when I look through a file, if it's a controverted file, and I one, I'll take a look at the hospital records. If we have those, I'll look at the C3. I will look at the initial treating doctor records. And sometimes there will be completely different histories, right? The hospital records, which we don't always get, will say the injury happened at home. I mean, that would be a home run right there. But let's, let's just say it, it doesn't say it happened at home, but it happened on his way to work. And then his C3 says it happened at work. And then the first medical says, uh, gives a completely different accident history, but it occurred at work. So all of a sudden, there are a bunch of red flags, right? I'm, I'm looking at this file, and I'm like, this claimant is not giving a consistent history. So when I see two, three, four different histories in a file, I'm already thinking I can pick this claimant apart when I have when I take his testimony, right? And um, so... My fear in getting an IME would be that the claimant goes, he, and, the, and many times the IMEs will actually look, and we will say, please look at these records. Is there a consistent history? And they'll say, there is not a consistent history. There were some uh, distinctions between the accident histories given, but based on the history given to me by the claimant, if that history is correct, I'm going to find a uh, causal relationship for the injuries. Whereas... I feel that if I had just been able to go to the trial without having an IME concede cause relationship and cross-examine the treating doctor, I'm much more likely to win and get that case disallowed based on credibility issues with the claimant. Here's where here's where I, I might disagree there. Uh, well, not might. I'm going to disagree here. <laughs> um, if you have multiple accident histories, instead of having the doctor comment on causal relationship, can't I ask the doctor to answer whether or not the multiple accident histories confuse whether any injuries are related to one, both, or neither? Couldn't I do that? You definitely could. I think the issue would be on cross-examination of the IME. They, you may run into difficulties there, right? The, the claimant's attorney will say, well, this is the actual history that was given to us in our C3 could that have caused a the, the knee injury or the the uh, work related accident or the, I'm sorry the work related injury, and an IME will say well it's possible right anything's possible but it is possible I'm okay with that okay I think I'm okay with that if you know you ask generalized hypothetical questions to an expert witness uh, during a deposition if they give me an answer to say that yeah that's possible 
I'm going to be arguing to the judge, like, is mere possibility the standard for causal relationship? No. It has to be a reasonable probability. And for a concession of possibility to be used as the way to establish the claim, I'm actually looking at that as the evidence that the judge acted incorrectly on appeal. Right. Uh, I guess it just comes down to which, uh, what your preferences are, right? For me, I just love to pick apart a claimant on cross-examination when I'm doing the trial. But why can't you still do that with an IME? Right, because if I, if the IMEs ask a question, you know, it says, "Please review the hospital records." The claimant reported this accident history. But do the IMEs always answer our questions and do exactly what we ask them to answer? No, but like, does anyone right no. in, in any situation? I, I think you know that's that's where I differ with the strategy because if we're worried about you know a possible result from someone that doesn't follow the process, you know. We, it's it's just tough to change that process, you know, because there are IME doctors, many of them, that do follow the process, that they answer yep. the questions correctly, right? They examine the correct body parts. Are there IME doctors that hurt us by not following the rules? Yes. But you know what? Those doctors get siphoned out of panels, right? They don't get... They don't get the same level of referrals for exams if they can't listen to directions. And ultimately speaking, if it happened all the time, I think I would be more on board with this. But if there are multiple accident histories, I might be more inclined to tell an IME doctor, look at this accident history. Is this the same or different as what the claimant is telling you today? Right. And then look at this accident history. Is this the same or different as what the claimant's telling you today? The claimant's not going to go into the IME doctor and give two different histories. He or she's going to give one. Right. So if I ask both of those questions, I'm going to get something good for one of them, right? And if the IME doctor comes back and ruins my life <laughs> with a bad report, well, you know what? Sometimes you just chalk it up to that, right? It's a bad report, but I, you know... Unless we're going in there saying, you know what, there's only one IME doctor in this region, in this time frame, and all of his or her reports are terrible. Then I might say to you, you know what, this doctor has, a, has bad experience with us. He or she gives bad reports on this type of issue. Let's run away from this doctor. <laughs> you know? But it's, can you at least see that? You know? I definitely I think there's credence to what you're saying. I'm not – obviously – this is sort of a case-by-case -case, uh, analysis, right? Because how often do you really get three different accident histories in a controverted claim? It probably happens maybe 25% of the time, if I'm being generous. I'm not sure. But when I see them, I love those cases. Um, and it's just my general feeling is, you know, I don't want the IME to shoot me in the foot. Sure. I get that. I get that. I think that there's just some ways to really look at it. But that's what we do here, right? We're not going to just take a situation and then create one outcome for all of those situations, right? Definitely not. Yep, I agree. So multiple histories and causes, that was your second example. And the third example that you provided was when a records review would be better than a physical IME. So... What's an example of, of that uh, scenario coming to play? So one that we've discussed is uh, when a claimant has already undergone surgery to the, the claim body part. So 
sometimes I'll go to the hearings and the claimant's attorney will say, well, you know, we would ask you to find PFME for such and such body part. And then we look through and we find out the claimant's already had surgery of that body part, right? Um, so I'll, I'll tell the judge, obviously, the, the claimant's body part's already been caught up in surgery. What is the purpose of having an in-person IME uh, when the claimant has already had surgery? Obviously, there's some type of injury to, the, to that body part. Preferably, I will tell the judge, I'll say, listen, a record review would be more appropriate here to review the prior records before the surgery. And uh, in some instances, and I think this is a general trend that is not necessarily correct, but law judges will say an in-person IME is more credible than a records review. Generally but, speaking, yes. But right. in this circumstance, say the claimant has already had surgery to the, the, the newly claimed body part, to me, it seems to make more logical sense for the IME just to perform a records review of all the treatment records prior to the surgery because we already know that the claimant's body part is probably still in pain from the surgery. Why would we have the IME look at it? And many times they go to the IME and what do they say? The claimant was in too much pain. I couldn't examine the body part, right, post-surgery. Yeah, so it's an pre- interesting dilemma, right, because you want the IME doctor to determine whether there's a disability to the new body part whether it's related to our, our, our initial accident. And, you know, it was something that, you know, did raise some eyebrows with me when you, when you talked about this. You know, the claimant having an extensive treatment modality uh, to this uh, body part before they are raising it at the compensation board level, which is very interesting, too, because what would really move or encourage a claimant to get a surgery on a body part that hasn't already been paid for yet by the compensation carrier. Because a lot of times the compensation doctors don't want to go forward with a surgery until they know it's being paid by our client, right? So to me, I, it, it's, it's, it's very interesting to see like what type of case is happening where a claimant's bypassing the whole like, you know, my right knee hurts. I go to my attorney. I go to my doctor. He or she is going to get surgery on this body part before bringing it to a judge. That, to me, is a, a very, very interesting red flag in general, right? Right. So it does, it, it does give you some ammo there because, to me, when that happens, something else is going on that has nothing to do with the IME, that we should be focusing our efforts away from what an IME is going to say because even if the IME looks at it and says, you just had surgery, so there's a disability there. I don't, I don't want that, so right. I agree with you, but I think it's the, the bigger picture is, why is this happening? So I think it, it's just a movement of our uh, investment from, from an IME into somewhere else. Uh, the other, you know, when you brought this up, I, the one thing I do love about records reviews is for pain management and opioid use. Mm-hmm. I don't want a physical pain management IME. There are too many factors at play. One, cost, right? It's, it's more expensive for a pain management uh, physical IME, especially given the fact that if you're going to have them comment on medications, you might be giving them so many different records like that you know, maybe an orthopedic IME doesn't need to see, right? right. Um, the other thing is attendance. You have to rely on the claimant to show up. Right, even when directed, even though it's in statute that they have to do it, or they risk getting their benefits taken away, taken away. It's 
it's something that is relying on, on an adverse party. Yep. Right? And three, we're not looking for this report uh, to talk about an injury, a disability, the relationship. Yep. I'm trying to get the doctor to say, is this too much? Is this opioid medication too much? And nine times out of ten, it is. That's why we have an epidemic in this country with opioids. Why else would you need someone to really see a claimant to see whether it's affecting him? Really, you just need to look at the records. Are the right pain uh, thresholds being looked at? Is the right morphine equivalent dose uh, being discussed? You know, and, and even looking at the board's non-acute pain guidelines, right? Is it within those guidelines? That doesn't require a physical exam. Do you agree? I yes, definitely. I, obviously, um, and and I, I think the last thing is is the proper medication that is being prescribed. Is it appropriate for the actual injuries uh, that the claimant allegedly is being diagnosed with? Right, right? because you don't need to see the claimant exactly, to make that opinion. Exactly. Yes. So pain management IMEs for that purpose. Uh, you know, that's one of the, when you brought this topic up. That's the first thing I thought of. Right, pain management record views for opioid uh, discussion, medication weaning uh, should always go through a records review. It's it's not as costly. You're not depending on an adverse party to show up, and the opinion actually doesn't re need to rely on a physical exam. Right. So there's so many different types of cases that we've talked about today that we actually created the three categories for this. Ian, I know that. We may disagree about it, but I think that's really the nature of this, right? A case isn't just a case. There's so many different layers as to why you may need one, why you may not. Right. And that's really how we form our litigation opinions. Uh, you know, here at Lois, we're not uh, 30 to 40 attorneys with the same opinions about everything because that doesn't really, that doesn't, it's not, it's not possible. First of all, right? You know, we can train on basics and what the law says, right. but interpreting a case to that law takes some actual skill and differentiation between attorneys. That's I think that's necessary. I think that's needed. I also think since we're uh, you know moving to a more specialized area where we can match attorneys' skill sets with a particular client's needs, that type of thing will shine through. You start start to see what goals are being set for the attorney and the handling team, I think it's more likely that uh, the differentiation is okay. What do you think? I completely agree with you. So any <laughs> final thoughts other than no IMEs to our clients here today? No, but thank you for having me on. I uh, Obviously, these are fun to do, so I appreciate you uh, asking me or inviting me to come and do this. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I, I like it. You know, you have so much experience in this field. Uh, you know, Ian here actually is... Uh, really making some some dents uh, in our culture, you know. So I would be remiss if I didn't end by having you not talk about uh, our Challenge Coin program. So uh, I know I I'm springing this on you a little bit. A little bit, yes. Well, what exactly are we trying to accomplish with the Challenge Coin program? We want to acknowledge attorneys for doing exemplary work. Basically, um, obviously. We want it to have a significant value. We don't want it to be a cheap uh, thing to win. Uh, but when attorneys uh, are getting significant wins on files, I'm not sure if you want me to go into specifics or not. Uh, no, but just, just the nature of the program, right? You know, you're, they, get a, they get a big win on a file. 
what are what are what was the program doing for them? So basically, we're going to be monitoring uh, what we categorize as as wins for each attorney. And uh, once they get a specific number of wins, then they get recognition by earning a challenge coin. This idea actually came out of the military. It was actually one of my friends uh, that was in the army, and I was at his house, and I said, "What are all these cool little things?" And he said, "You win these for." Um, completing challenges that's why they're called the challenge coin so uh then i spoke to you guys and everybody seemed to be on board and i actually think it's a very positive thing uh people like to be recognized right so um we're going to recognize the positive wins that our attorneys are getting and uh, they will be earning challenge coins as a result so you heard it here guys uh to all of our clients and the prospects out there uh we're not doing this uh, you know, just for, you know, getting the disallowance, the, the disallowance or the fraud win or the big outcome really means something to us too. And I think that really puts us in line with, uh, you know, what our client's goals are. So, uh, Ian, thank you for coming on. Uh, to everybody still listening, I know we're on minute 41. Uh, this is Christian Cisan signing off and reminding you to defend from day one.